if you got your phones, pull them out. Go ahead and pull out your phones. And I want you, we're going to take a poll here. I want you to go to, go to our website, riverlifemn.com slash poll, P-O-L-L. And I want to ask everyone the question, what's your experience with the Christian and Missionary Alliance? In other words, growing up, did you attend an Alliance church a lot? Sometimes, not at all. Did you not attend church at all? Okay, so go to riverlifemn.com slash poll. And go ahead and vote. Put in, your, put in your poll. And I've got the answers. The answers will pop up on my tablet here. And we'll, we'll see what our collective experience with the Christian Missionary Alliance looks like. So, yep, go ahead. And, and if someone next to you doesn't have their phone, go ahead after you vote. Just reset the page. Reload the page. Give it to them. Let them vote. Let's see. Okay, okay. There we go. Good. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Let's keep it, keep it going. We've got what? We've got about, about 25 votes coming in so far. There we go. Okay, we're, we're over 30, 35. Good. Uh, yeah, and go ahead, and you can pass it on to someone else if they, they didn't, don't have their phone on you. The battery died already. Go ahead and take a vote. Okay. Let's see. Let's see what we're looking what we're looking like here. All right. Okay. Yeah, the votes keep coming in. We're we're almost up to 50 or so. Okay, there we go. We'll give it another minute as some more votes come in. Okay. Here we go. Let's see what we got here. So, we've got about about 70% of us in the room right now either consistently attended or periodically attended a, an Alliance church growing up. Okay, so it's about 35% it, it, consistently, 35% um, periodically. And then about, about 20% did not attend an Alliance church. And then about, about 10, 11% did not attend church. Growing up or in the past. Okay, so th this is actually really helpful because it gives me an idea of how much you might have heard about this thing called the fourfold gospel that's a part of Alliance churches. Well, for me, I didn't, I didn't grow up going to church. I didn't even, I'd never even heard of the Christian Missionary Alliance when I started going to church in high school. Um, it wasn't until we moved out here, my wife and I moved out to Minnesota here in 2001, where we started attending a, a Hmong CMA church. And that was my very first exposure to the CMA. Now, now before, she grew up, she, she, she grew up CMA, she bleeds CMA, like old school hymns, middle of Iowa, nowhere, go Alliance, okay? Me, I never even heard of the thing. So and we started attending this Hmong church, Hmong CMA church. And, and then I started to get a little bit familiar with the Alliance. But as, as probably 70% of you or so know who, who attended regularly or attended periodically, if it was a Hmong CMA church, the, the Hmong CMA churches are kind of their own little sub-denomination. So even though we attended a CMA church for like 10 years, it, I didn't really learn anything about the national and international CMA because Hmong... Hmong CMA tends to kind of be its own little sub-denomination. So literally, it wasn't until about four years ago when we, when we started planting River Life 
that I started to learn about this thing called the Christian Missionary Alliance. So I'll share a little bit with you. So the the Christian Missionary Alliance, it was founded by this guy named A.B. Simpson. So in A.B. this was around about 1880 or so. Okay, here, here he is rocking a really good beard, by the way. He, he would be hipster crowd primo right now. Okay? So A.B. Simpson founded the, the Christian Missionary Alliance, and he founded it, he anchored it in four key beliefs about Jesus Christ. And this is what he called the fourfold gospel. First, um, oh, and it's, it's in the logo. If you're familiar with the CMA logo, it's right there in it. These four pieces are all in that original logo. By the way, the very original logo didn't have the globe. It just had the four little pictures in it. They added the globe a little later. So, but A.B. Simpson found it. He anchored the theology of the alliance on these four aspects of Jesus Christ. First, that Jesus is our Savior. This is represented by the cross in the logo. Okay, second, Jesus is our sanctifier. This is represented by the laver. Um, I know it looks like a wine glass. Uh, if it is, then maybe you, you were drinking a little too much last night. Nope. But it's, yeah, that's actually a water basin. It's for washing. And next week, come back next week to understand why that's not a wine glass and it is a water basin. Next week, it'll all make sense. Third, third is that Jesus is our healer. And that little pitcher thing, that is a pitcher that, that was designed to hold anointing oil. Um, we, we, when my wife prays, when I pray with people, that we will anoint someone with oil is something the Bible talks about and is connected to divine healing. And then fourth, Jesus is our coming king. This is represented by the crown. So if you've ever wondered, if you've ever seen this logo, that's what it all represents. And then the globe was added later on to, to give the global missions mindset of the alliance. So there you have it. Jesus, Jesus as our Savior, sanctifier, 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 healer, and coming king. That's what we're going to be talking about for the next four weeks. So today, and that's, that's, that's the fourfold gospel. These four things, these four things represent the most important things you can believe about Jesus. Let me say that again. The, the, the fourfold gospel, these represent the four most important things you could ever believe about Jesus. These are the non-negotiables. These are the things to believe. Especially here as a part of an alliance church here. This is what, this is what we believe about Jesus. Okay? So today we're talking about Jesus as our Savior, okay? as our Savior, the very first one. Um, and to start us off, we're going to watch a video. So the Alliance has produced some great videos to go along with these, these four characteristics, these four roles, these four parts of Jesus. There's some great videos. We're going we're gonna to watch them here. And it's a bit longer than the usual ones that I played. So this one's actually about 10 minutes. Um, so it accomplishes two things. One, it helps you get to know the Alliance better, and it also gives me a little break from standing on my feet. So it gives my back a little break. It works out really well. So it, again, it's about 10 minutes long, so sit back and relax and enjoy as we learn a little bit about Jesus Christ as our Savior.
Hello again. I've been looking forward to our time together as we continue our study of CNMA DNA. We're talking about the fourfold gospel, and today we want to talk about Jesus Christ, our Savior. For many years now, I've watched with interest, amusement, and sometimes just plain amazement as parents determine the names that their children are going to bear. In some families like mine, there's a strong predisposition to choose names that honor much-loved family members, resulting in a recycling of the same few names in generation after generation. Other parents simply pick names that they like because they're pretty or strong or just plain popular. Some opt for unique, one-of-a-kind names that stand out in bold relief, and others tend toward the whimsical. I'm pretty sure that Shaquille O'Neal's parents were into rhyming in a big way. The ancient Hebrews tried hard to choose names that would speak prophetically about the character or the mission of their children. Nearly every time in culture, however, the one common factor is that it is the right of the parent to name the child. In the case of Mary and Joseph, though, that wasn't the case. An angel appeared to Joseph in a dream, and the angel said, Give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. From the very beginning, God wanted it to be very clear that the most important thing about his earthborn son was that he would be our Savior. Now, it's equally clear that Jesus shared the perspective of his father. In the closest thing he ever came to a public statement of purpose, he said, The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That's in Luke 19.10. In a similar vein, he told the disciples on another occasion, The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10.45 The apostolic writers of the New Testament were equally clear about his mission. Paul wrote, This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 The earliest Christians even identified themselves to one another in a world that was very dangerous with the sign of a fish because the Greek letters of the word for fish formed an acrostic for the phrase, Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Savior. Now, Every single person with even the most rudimentary understanding of the Christian faith knows that Jesus is the Savior. But my suspicion is that most of us have never stopped to think about all that's entailed in that simple truth. Some time ago, I sat down with a pen and paper, and I began to make a list of all the other things that are true because Jesus is my Savior. I want to tell you, that exercise left me nearly breathless and it ended in one of the richest times of thanksgiving and praise that I can ever remember. Here are just some of the things that are true, because Jesus is my Savior. My sins have been forgiven. Every single one of them, including the ones that I haven't committed yet. My guilt is gone. That was the promise Peter made to the huge crowd that gathered on the day of Pentecost. If you repent of your sins, he said, and if you believe that Jesus is your Savior, your sins will be forgiven. Acts 2.38 I have peace with God. I'm no longer an outlaw. His wrath has been satisfied. The war is over. The penalty is paid. 
That's in Romans 5.1. I have been declared righteous, literally clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the meaning of that great New Testament word justification that's so prominent in the book of Romans. It's a legal word that means God has declared us to be righteous and He has imputed or counted over to our account the righteousness of Christ. I'm a new creature. Yes, everything is new. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If you've never memorized that verse, you need to do that right now. I have eternal life. I'm going to live forever with God. That is the promise of the most familiar verse in the whole Bible. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. I've been adopted by God. In John 1.12, the apostle writes that whoever believes in Jesus gets adopted, becomes the son or the daughter of God. Now, think about this with me for just a minute. There is no logical or necessary connection between forgiveness and adoption. He could have forgiven me and told me to go away, get lost. But that's not what happened. He adopted me. Once, a long time ago, I preached a sermon on forgiveness. At the end of the service, a lady came to me and asked if I would go with her to visit a man who was in prison. So I agreed. I asked who we'd be visiting, and she said, The man who murdered my mother. I need to forgive him. Wow. I don't know if that man's life was changed or not, but I can tell you that mine was. I learned about forgiveness in a whole new way. She forgave him. She really did. But friends, she did not adopt him. That would have been a whole different thing. And this is what you need to understand right now. Because Jesus is your Savior, God has not only forgiven us, He has also adopted us. Then His Holy Spirit lives in me. I am, the New Testament says, the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. God now lives in me. Also, Jesus is now my advocate, literally my defense attorney. He represents me before the throne of God against every accusation that could be made against me. In 1 John 2, the old apostle says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a defense attorney. One who stands before the Father to plead our case. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Also, nothing can separate me from God's love. The eighth chapter of the book of Romans, one of the greatest of the great chapters of the Bible, ends with these words. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else of all, in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, the love that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. No one, no how, no thing. Death has no more power over me. Do you remember the story of Lazarus? It's told in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. He was Jesus' friend, and he died. And Jesus stood outside his tomb and called him back to life, 
And it was then that the Savior said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. John eleven twenty five. Also, I've got an inheritance. An inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. An inheritance that Peter says in the first chapter of his epistle is being kept in heaven for us. And then Peter says, we are also being kept by God's power for that inheritance. It is guaranteed. Now, I've just rattled off 11 different things that are true because Jesus is our Savior. And that, my friends, is only a partial list. One Bible scholar made a list of more than 30 things that are true about us just because He is our Savior. Now, before we finish our time today, I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk to you for a few moments about the kind of Savior that Jesus is. He is, first of all, a universal Savior. That is, He he didn't come to simply save His own people, the Jews. He said, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And He commissioned His followers to take this gospel to all the nations. See, Christianity is not a religion for the West, for the nations of Europe and America. Now, I'm sure you already realize that, but we live in a time when many would have us to believe that we should confine our efforts at proselytizing to just the nations where Christianity is most well entrenched. But the desire of God is for all the nations. And the picture that's given to us in the book of Revelation is that in eternity, the throne of God will be surrounded by a numberless throng from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Jesus is also an exclusive Savior. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's in John chapter 14, verse 6. In a relativistic world of competing and contradictory truth claims, Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world. It is this claim more than any other that produces conflict, especially in a time when people want to live and let live, and when any attempt at all to convince people from other religious backgrounds that Jesus is the only way to God feels harsh and maybe even unloving. But friends, hear me well. In every arena of our lives, truth is not broad, it's narrow. Two plus two equals four, not seven. Airplanes are constructed along aerodynamic lines, not aesthetic ones. Because if you simply build them to look good, they won't fly. And if I climb to the top of a building and jump, it will not matter in the least whether I am totally sincere about my belief that I can fly like Superman. It's just not going to happen. I'm not going to break the law of gravity. Instead, it's going to break me. Jesus said, I am the Savior of the world. And He also said just as emphatically, I am the only Savior of the world. That is what Christians must believe. There is no alternative. The early Christians summarized it very well indeed. Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Savior. 
I need to ask you something. Is He your Savior? A few minutes ago, I quoted John chapter 1, verse 12. I want to quote it one more time. To all who received Him, to the ones who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. So there's a snapshot of what it means when we say Jesus is our Savior. And the video ended with, with sort of the million-dollar question, is Jesus your Savior? But see, to answer that, we have to understand it a little bit. Like, why do we need saving? What do we need saving from? If you can't really answer those questions, then you don't really know what you're saying if you say that Jesus is your Savior. So we need to be able to answer those questions. What are we, why do we need to be saved? What are we being saved from? And then with those, then we can understand if we're going to say yes to Jesus as our Savior. So to answer those questions, to give us some insight into those questions, we are going to turn to, to the crown jewels of theology in the New Testament. There's my royal wedding reference for the day. There you go. The crown jewel of theology in the whole New Testament. That's the book of Romans. And we're going to turn to one passage in particular that has arguably the best summary in the entire Bible about what it means that Jesus is our Savior. In fact, the famous, uh, the famous reformer Martin Luther, he described this passage like this. It is the chief point, the very central place of the book of Romans and of the whole Bible. Now, now I, I tend to think maybe John 3.16 might be up there or some other ones, but Martin Luther argued that this passage we're going to look at today is the most important passage in the entire Bible. Okay, so that, that gives it a little bit of weight. So what we're going to look at is Romans chapter 3, 21 to 26. So Romans chapter 3, and th today we're going to read out of the, the New Living Translation. Normally I, I preach out of the NIV. It's a great translation. I love it. But today we're, I'm going to switch. I'm going to move to the NLT, the New Living Translation, for a couple reasons. One is Paul uses some pretty fancy words and some pretty complex language in the book of Romans. And sometimes when I run into complex language, I find it easier to switch to an easier, simpler, clearer translation, such as the NLT. The other one is we don't quite have the time to dig into some of the language complexities, dig really deep. So I figure this would be a much better option. Go with the NLT. It's actually my favorite easy-to-read version. So if you ever read the Bible and you're finding it's a little difficult, Switch over your app if you're on or your tablet or go online and look up the NLT. It's a great version. So that's what we're going to be reading today. And yeah, whenever I do this, I acknowledge that we lose a little bit of clarity and specificity, particularly with the, the original language of Greek, where something like the NIV or the ESV would give much more detail and, and be a much closer translation to the original Greek. This one, I think, is still very, very good. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. So you can read along, you can click to it. If you're using your app, make sure just change the Bible version to NLT, New Living Translation, or you can follow along up on the screen. Here we go. 
But now, God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. So we're going to pause there. Okay? Verse 20 here. This is a transition point in the book of Romans. Paul spends the first two and a half chapters up to this verse focusing on human sinfulness and God's punishment of evil, God's justice, God's wrath. And, and so Paul sets out a very compelling argument that, we, that human means we are sinful. And because of that, we deserve God's wrath. We don't deserve anything good because of our sinful, our selfish, our, our hurtful ways, our destructive ways. And, and so Paul paints this for two and a half chapters. It's pretty rough. It's 81 verses just with Paul hammering it over and over and over again. And then this verse changes. It changes the tone. It's the transition. It says, but now there's something different. Okay? And it's amazing because this verse gives the promise there is a way we can be made right with God. And that was his point through chapter 1, chapter 2, and half of chapter 3, was that we are wrong with God. Because of our sin and our selfishness, we are on the wrong side of God's wrath. But Paul says, he gives us the amazing promise, but now there's a way we can be made right with God. Let's find out what that is. Next verse. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. That is an amazing statement. We could just camp on that statement. I'll read it again. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you can be saved. You can have a relationship with God. You could spend an eternity in God's presence, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. Now, in the original text, that, that phrase, no matter who you are, it says uh, whether Jew or Gentile, because that was pretty much the primary societal distinction for Jewish Christians back then. The whole world was divided up into Jew and non-Jew. So that was called Gentile. So that was the most logical designation. But for us, uh, we don't typically use those terminologies. So here are a few other ideas you can be saved no matter who you are, Hmong or Mika, black or white, educated or dropout, rich or poor, gay or straight, cis or trans, the good kid of the family or the black sheep of the family. No matter who you are, you can be saved and have a relationship with God. You can be made right with God. Everybody can be made right with God. So never think for a second 
that you have sinned too much. That if God really knew what I've done, then he wouldn't love me or the church wouldn't accept me. Yes, he does, and yes, we will. Because no matter who you are or what you've done, you can be saved. You can have a relationship with God. You can be made right with God. So let's continue. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. We all have sinned. Not just some of us, not just some before we became Christian, then we're not. Not just the good kids, not just the bad kids. We've all sinned. And this is really important. So I, I, I've created a graphic to help you out. Okay? Remember pie charts? Go back to math class. Here is a pie chart to help you understand this verse. There we go. You get it? Everyone who sinned, 100%. <laughs> The blue represent everyone who has sinned. The red represent the orange represents those who have not. We've all sinned. All of us. So don't you ever believe someone who makes you feel like you are a worse sinner than they are. Do not believe them. And don't you dare ever make someone feel that way compared to you. Because we are all sinners, every one of us. Now, that's the bad news. Now, the gospel, which is translated good news, there should be some good news around here. Well, next verse, this is the good news. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. That's the good news. The gospel should be a relief. It should be water on a hot day. It should be spring sun when we've just made it through winter. The gospel should be good news. And this is the good news. Now, this is, this is kind of interesting because what happens here is Paul starts to use, he uses three language metaphors in this passage. This is the first one. This first, this, this idea of being freed, that's slavery language. That, 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 in the Greek, that original language was very slave-oriented language. And when slaves are freed, that's what this is talking about. The theological term for this is called redemption. And if you were with us in the past few weeks when we were going through Hosea um, in, our, in our Boundless series, then you heard a lot about redemption. It's buying back. God loves us so much that he bought us back from slavery to sin and the penalty of sin. God freed us from those consequences. We were slaves to sin. And through Jesus Christ, God buys us back. So that's the first uh, language metaphor, which is the language of slavery. Now let's go to the next language metaphor. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Now, I know that's getting a little gory, okay? 
but that's, that's the reality of sacrifices. Because here the language metaphor is one of the Old Testament sacrificial system. You see, in the Old Testament, God designed a system because Jesus Christ hadn't come to pay for our sins, pay for their sins. So, so God developed a sacrificial system and gave it to the Israelites as a way to deal with their sin. So they offered sacrifices daily, weekly, uh, throughout the year for their religious holidays, and then annually. And they kept doing that because they kept sinning, and they kept having to offer these sacrifices. So here, Paul picks that up and says, you know what? Jesus Christ, he's the final sacrifice. He's the once and for all sacrifice. He is the one sacrifice for all time. You don't have to do it again. You, you can stop paying for your sins. You can stop trying to earn God's forgiveness because Jesus Christ was the final perfect sacrifice. So that's the second language metaphor that Paul uses. Now the third one, we're going to read a few verses here. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times of the past. This is referring back to the Old Testament. Um, For he was looking ahead and including them in what we would do at this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. So here's this last metaphor. And th- this metaphor, this is courtroom language. Words like held back punishment, make sinners right in his sight. The, in those in the original Greek, that was courtroom language. And so what the theological term for this is justification. And what this means is that, that our legal status before God changes. When you believe in Jesus Christ, your legal status standing before the throne of God changes from not guilty, excuse me, from guilty to not guilty. That's what being justified means. So so if you believe in Jesus Christ, when God looks at you, he does not see your sin. We all still have it. We all still sin. But God does not see our sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. Because because this idea of justification is two parts. On one hand, Jesus takes our sin on his shoulders. And in exchange, he gives us his righteousness. So when God sees us, he sees us as right with God because of Jesus Christ. Without a relationship with Jesus, we are still on the wrong side of God's wrath. That's why almost every week you hear me talk about, do you believe in Jesus? It's not about coming to church. It's not about being good. It's not about trying harder. It's not about checking off all the things on your list to be a good Christian. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior? And when you say yes to Jesus as your Savior, you go from guilty to not guilty. God makes sinners right in his sight. That is amazing. And there's nothing you can do. There's nothing I could do to make us right in his sight. That's why we need Jesus. 
if we didn't need a Savior, God wouldn't have set one. We need a Savior. We all do. So today, today you have an invitation to say, Jesus, you are my Savior. To say yes to Jesus Christ as your Savior. Whether you've never done that before, or whether you've done it before and you've kind of drifted a little bit, you've taken the right turn and just kept going, and you feel far away from God. You know the solution to that? You know how to get closer to God is get closer to Jesus. Get closer to Jesus and start with saying, yes, Jesus, you are my Savior. That's where you start. And all you have to do is say yes. And all of those things that you heard in the video are yours. Let me read them again. When you say yes to Jesus Christ as your Savior, your sins are forgiven. You have peace with God. You have been declared righteous in God's sight. You are a new creature. You have eternal life with God. You have been adopted by God. His Spirit lives in you. Jesus becomes your advocate. He speaks on your behalf. And nothing can separate you from God's love. When you say yes to Jesus... All of that is yours. And if you don't, you've got none of that. You you literally are on your own to deal with your own sin. And there's nothing we can do to fix that. That's why we need a Savior. If we didn't need a Savior, God wouldn't have sent one. But God did send one. He sent one for you, and he sent one for me. And thank God he did, because I need a Savior. I can't save myself. Neither can you. So as we finish up here, we return to the million-dollar question of today. Is Jesus your Savior? And for some of you, some of you that is a resounding yes, You are strong for God right now. You are sold out. And you are like, yes, Jesus is my Savior. Some of you are like, "Mm, yeah, maybe, kind of. I'm trying this God thing, but it's hard. And I'm only human anyway. It's kind of hard. And and one of the things we talked about the past few weeks, that, that when you get into sin and selfishness, to lean into Jesus. This is a time to lean into Jesus, to lean into Him as your Savior. And for some of you, maybe you've never actually asked that question, is Jesus my Savior? Whether you've been to church or not, doesn't matter. You can go to church for years and never have to answer that question. But if you're not sure you've ever said, yes, Jesus is my Savior, Today is a great day to do that because God wants a relationship with you, but our sin is preventing that.
Jesus Christ died on a cross to forgive our sins, to make us right in God's eyes. We can have a relationship with him. So as, as I close in prayer here, we're, we're going to pray two prayers. So the first one is specifically for those of you who have never said, yes, Jesus, you are my Savior. And again, it doesn't matter whether you've been to church or not, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, but if you've never said that, now is the chance to say that and pray that directly to God. And then I'll, I'll pray a closing prayer over all of us. All right. So please join me in the first prayer in this one. And if you want to say yes to Jesus Christ as your Savior today, pray, pray this. You can pray this out loud. You can pray it in your, in your head. Join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door of my life. I receive you as my Savior. Thank you for forgiving my sins. Thank you for giving me eternal life. Take control of the throne of my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. Now close in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you sent us a Savior. You did one thing that none of us could do, which is to save us from our sin. So that we, as sinful, selfish people, can stand before a holy God. You don't see us, but you see Christ in us. Thank you, God. We are humbled that you would, you would do that. God, despite us turning away from you over and over again, hurting ourselves, hurting others over and over again, Choosing our way over your way over and over again. God, we are humbled that you would love us. And we're humbled that you want a relationship with us. God, so I pray that every person here can have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ as, a, as their Savior. That their name can be written in the book of life. And they could spend an eternity with you because of what Jesus Christ did for them. God, so we thank you. And we thank you that you sent Jesus Christ to die for us. And I thank you that you sent Jesus Christ to die for me. And I pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.